following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, uh, we are in Ezra chapter uh, 1. Of course, last week we introduced this new series uh, through the book of Esther, or Ezra. Ezra, those are very similar, aren't they? Uh, Esther was like four years ago. So we are in Ezra. And, um, and we're going to be in chapters 1 and 2 today. But before we get to the text, uh, my, uh, a little, you know, little account, my, my boys, and I think you know, there's a lot of other uh, boys in our church and lots of other people around the country, really enjoy watching videos of Dude Perfect. So how many of you have ever seen a Dude Perfect video? Some of you have, not very many. Well, some of you. And so if you're not familiar with them, uh, Dude Perfect, it's a group of guys uh, that... I think the story is basically in college, uh, they had a lot of fun doing, you know, doing challenges together. And, um, and so they have, have made a huge following and made a lot of money by producing these YouTube videos of them doing trick shots. So they'll you know, put a ping pong ball like back at the, at the back door, or a, a solo cup like at the back of the room, and they'll bounce it you know, five, six times until it lands in the, the, in the solo cup. And then... You know, you watch on video, and, and they make the shot, and then they get all excited. They run around, and they celebrate, and they give each other high fives. And, and, and they're really, uh, a lot of time, really fun little videos to watch. And, and some of the things they do, I mean, really do look pretty impressive. Like, if I were to stand here and try and bounce a ping pong ball into a cup by the back door, it would take me a lot of tries before I would probably get that done. And, and of course, they probably burned through a ton of video practicing that shot over and over and over until it ultimately goes in. But you know, guys love that type of stuff. We love to to have some little quirky challenge of no significance, but we have to do it. I remember when I was in elementary school in uh, recess, you know, in the wintertime, and and, uh, we would would shoot half-court shots over and over. You know, we're out there, you know, we're in like third grade and we're chucking the ball as hard as we can. And, and you know, you're hitting the lights in the ceiling and the, you know, teachers are yelling at us, but we just keep shooting these half-court shots over and over and airballing shot after shot. And, and, and you just, you feel like, I got to do this. I can do it. And of course, finally one goes in and everyone celebrates and runs around and, and, and we get excited like we just won the lottery. And, uh, you know, I think all of us, we, we, we love a challenge, and we love to defy the odds. And, um, and when we actually are successful, we get really excited. And I imagine that, that for all of us in this room, we, we've had experiences, whether we were trying to do it or not, uh, where, where we have gotten excited about defying the odds and pulling something off. You know, something happens to us, and we think, I can't believe that just happened. What are the odds that, that this little thing would take place? And this morning, uh, we are going to look at an amazing story uh, where, where God does something that we would not expect. And of course, ultimately, we, we can rejoice today in the fact that, that our world is not ultimately governed by the law of averages or by the odds. No, a sovereign God rules over every corner of our universe. And he is going to display his mighty power in the story of our text, uh, Ezra 1 and 2. And and it's a story that that from a human perspective, 
looks like a random stroke of luck. But this story is truly a work of God and really an amazing testimony to the faithfulness and the sovereignty of our God. So so the text begins by by telling us about a decree. So uh, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 say, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So to appreciate this text, uh, we, we have to back up and, and remember the historical context of this decree that we talked about uh, last Sunday. So, so last Sunday, uh, we put up this timeline and, and remember that the events of Ezra, now first of all, are happening at the tail end of the Old Testament period. So, so basically, the end of the Old Testament is right here, all right? There's really no record of, uh, well, the Old Testament ends, 400 B.C. or so. So this is the very end of the Old Testament period. And the events of Ezra are focused with, with two things. The fall of Babylon in 539, and then the story begins, really, with, with God uh, making it possible for Israel to return, and, and they make that first return somewhere in the range of 538 to 536 B.C. So, so that's the context of what's going on. And, and remember... That the major event which sets the stage for the book of Ezra is the destruction of Jerusalem here in 586 B.C. And it was a devastating event. In fact, why don't you turn over a page in your Bible to 2 Chronicles 36. And I think it would be good for us just to set the stage for our text by reading 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 21. It says there, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. 
All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So the narrator reminds us there that that God warned Israel over and over that that this destruction was coming and and He urged them to repent. But they continually ignored God's warnings and dishonored His word. And so God did what He said He was going to do. The Babylonians came in. They destroyed the city. They killed many of its citizens. The text says, without any care for young or old or man or woman. And and they carried most of the rest of the people off into captivity to Babylon. And so I want you today to imagine, you know, if you were one of the few people that were left behind and you're standing there in the rubble of Jerusalem after all this has taken place. It looks like a tornado has come through and just destroyed this once glorious city. And you're looking there, all that's left is, you know, there's a few puffs of smoke from buildings that are burning. There's piles of rubble. And probably the stench of rotting bodies. And yes, it's true that God had prophesied that through Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, that someday He was going to restore His people. But if you're standing there in the middle of all that rubble, it would be really hard to believe that, that, that this city is once again going to be a place where God is honored and the temple is rebuilt. The odds would seem insurmountable. And yet, remarkably, uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23, and then as well, our text, uh, Ezra 1, 1 through 4, tell us that, that God kept His word. And and Cyrus made a way for the Jews to come home. And and folks, it is hard for us to comprehend on this side of of history just how incredible this all is and how incredible it would have been for the Jews who were alive when when these events are taking place. And and as we walk our way through verses 1 through 4, I'd like to highlight three characteristics of God that that are evident in verses 1 through 4. So first of all, we see in this text that God is faithful. Now, for a moment here, I want to enter into the mind of, of King Cyrus. And, uh, of course, um, you know, King Cyrus, uh, as we said last week, he's, he's not so much concerned about fulfilling prophecy. He doesn't care what Isaiah or Jeremiah said. But remember that in 539 B.C., he conquered Babylon. And so all of a sudden, Cyrus becomes the king of, of a massive world empire. And, uh, and most of his subjects, though have no natural loyalty to him, right? They're they're people that have been conquered from from various nations all over the world. And of course, the Babylonian people are are probably mad that he has conquered their land. And so, so, you know, most of these people, they they have been destroyed. They've been been humiliated by the Babylonians. And and they probably look at Cyrus and think, man, he's just going to be another brutal, evil dictator. But Cyrus, he was a shrewd guy. He was not an egomaniac. 
You know, instead, you know, he recognized that, that if I want to have an efficient kingdom, you know, I don't want to keep all these people in line by sheer force. I want to inspire them to, to respect me and, and to be loyal to me. And, and, so, and so rather than, first of all, humiliating the gods of the peoples like the Babylonians did. So when the Babylonians, the Assyrians, other nations, when they defeated a country, typically they would go in and they would embarrass the gods of, of that nation. Tear up their temples, mock them as, as a testament to the greatness of their gods. But, but instead, when Cyrus became king, Instead of ruining the temples in Babylon, he actually went in and he worshipped the gods of the Babylonians. And so he was distancing himself from, from the policies of, 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 the, of, the, of the Babylonians. And, and he further distanced himself from the Babylonian brutality by, by developing a broad policy of, of helping the captives from all these various nations return to their homelands and rebuild their sacred sites. So uh, I mentioned this quote last week. We have this quote and uh, the archaeologists have found from Cyrus himself. And so he says, I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time. The images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities, ask Bel and Nebo, which would be two um, uh, Middle Eastern gods, for a long life for me. To Marduk, which is the primary deity of the Babylonians, my lord. May they say this, Cyrus the king who worships you, and Cambyasus his son. So, so that was his policy. It was a broad policy. And, and so from, from Cyrus's perspective... The decree that we have here in verses 2 through 4 is simply another application of this policy. But of course, the narrator understands that something far greater is at work. We look again how he begins verse 1. He says, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, now again, uh, so the narrator here mentions the prophecy of Jeremiah. And so, uh, so again, uh, Jeremiah had prophesied before the destruction of Jerusalem. He had said, this whole land will be a desolation and a whore. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation declares the Lord. For their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Now, now again, when we read a prophecy like this, we have the benefit of looking all in the past. And we know that this all happened, right? But, but think about the fact that when Jeremiah gave this prophecy, it had to sound absolutely insane. Because at the point in time where Jeremiah gave, makes this prophecy, the Assyrian, I mean, excuse me, the Babylonians are mowing down everyone in their path. They've defeated the Assyrians, who seemed, uh, in, uh, who seemed impenetrable. They've defeated Egypt. And they are bearing down on, on Jerusalem, and, 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 and it didn't look like these people could ever be defeated. And yet Jeremiah stands up in this little insignificant community of Jerusalem and says, after 70 years... God is going to crush this kingdom of Babylon 
and he is going to bring his people home. And if you're a Jew listening to that, you think, well, that sounds good, but there's no way that's going to happen. So imagine the reaction of the Jews when Cyrus comes into Babylon and defeats the Babylonians. They're probably like, wow, like that happened. But, but there's no way, there's no way that he's going to let us return home and rebuild our, 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 our temple. And then one day, you're, you're just going about your life, doing your thing, and a royal herald shows up in this Jewish community. He pulls out a scroll, and he begins to read the decree in verses 2 through 4. And your jaw hits the ground. Like, wow, God is fulfilling his word. He is faithful. And of course, for us, on this side of the cross, we need to recognize that, that a whole lot more is going on here than just even the group of people from Israel being allowed to return to their home. You know, I mean, think back to, to the destruction of Jerusalem and, and think of how happy Satan must have been when Jerusalem fell. Because you look back in the Old Testament, God had told David that, that, that a son of David would be the Messiah and that he would rule from Jerusalem over an everlasting kingdom. And you go back even further in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised Abraham that in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God had staked his faithfulness on, on the throne of David and on the people of Israel. So, after Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes the last Davidic king into captivity, gouges out Zedekiah's eyes, and burns a city, destroys the temple, Satan's probably thinking, I did it. I ruined God's plan. God's not going to be able to keep His word. And where is there going to be a Messiah if there is no nation of Israel? But of course, God's plan of redemption will not be denied. And so against all odds, God here moves in the heart of Cyrus and, his, and puts his redemptive purpose back on schedule. And of course, we know where the story goes from there. That, that these people come home and, and they rebuild their country and Jesus is born as a descendant of David. He fulfills prophecy after prophecy. He dies on the cross for our sins he rises in victory. And certainly we know that He's going to come again. And He is going to fulfill every other promise that God has given to His people. He's going to glorify His saints. And He is going uh, to, to establish an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus is going to rule from the throne of David over the nations. And He will reconcile everything to Himself. And so you can absolutely... And trust your soul to the faithfulness of God to His redemptive promise. Now, we don't have to face death or, or, or face the uncertainties of life. You know, just kind of hoping that we make it to heaven today and, and sort of hoping that everything works out okay. No. We, we can face death with absolute certainty that God is faithful. And the Bible promises in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So, so God will forgive all of your sin in Christ and He will receive you into His family. So, so if there's anyone here today who has never received Christ as your Savior, 
I, I pray that today you, you will entrust your soul to Christ. So, so confess your sins to God. You know, acknowledge the fact that you have sinned against His will. You, you have broken His law and you deserve His judgment. But, but put your confidence in what Jesus did on the cross as your only hope of salvation. And if you put your faith in Christ, you can be certain that God will keep His promise. And you can leave today knowing that your sins are forgiven and your soul is secure in Christ. And so if you've never been saved, I hope that today you will look at the story and see that God is faithful. And just as certainly as He did this in the past, He will continue to accomplish His purpose to the very end. So trust in Him and be saved. And if you are saved, keep trusting God's redemptive promises all along the way. Your spiritual life might feel like the rubble of Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar left town. But God is able to restore the mess. And He is always faithful to every promise. So do not lose heart. Do not stop trusting Him to accomplish what He has said. Endure by faith, believing that God is faithful to His Word. As we sang just a few minutes ago, that He will hold His people fast. He will keep us to the very end. So praise the Lord for, for this story, which is such a testament to the faithfulness of God. And then the second characteristic of God that stands out in this text is the, is the fact that God is not only faithful, He is also sovereign. So, so just imagine, right, again, what it must have been like for the Jews to hear this pagan king confess what this decree says about God. Now, now our country, of course, we, we live in, our, our country has, has deep Christian uh, roots, deep Christian heritage, and so, and so we're fairly used to our politicians talking about God and, and saying things about the God of the Bible. But, but the Persians had none of that. You know, to them, to Cyrus, you know, Jerusalem and, and Judea, I mean, it's just a tiny little, just another religion in the you know, the vast Parthenon of all the gods in the universe. And yet look again at verse 2 at what Cyrus says about God. It says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has appointed me to build Him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's an incredible testimony, incredible confession. Now, Now, to be fair... Right? We, we know that Cyrus was a polytheist. So, so it was not a big deal for him to, to make this declaration about the God of the Bible and then walk over here and say the same thing about every other God that, that, that various peoples worshipped. So, so I do not believe, I'm confident that we should not look at this as a confession of salvation. That Cyrus gave himself to the exclusive worship of, of the God of the Bible. But, but the narrator understands that this is not just another royal decree. Look again at what he says in the middle of verse 1. He says, by the, the Lord, uh, that, that, in, that he, he did all this, but says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And as a result, he gives the Jews permission to, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. And, and folks, by the way, that, that permission to rebuild the temple is, is very important. Because right, we're going to see later on in the book of Ezra 
that, that if you rebuilt one of these structures and you did not have permission from the king, it was considered an act of rebellion. So, so the fact, he didn't just tell them they could go home. He told them that they could rebuild their temple. And, and then finally, notice the provisions that, that God, or that Cyrus makes in verse 4. He says, every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him. With silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, it's important that we recognize that this decree here is probably geared primarily towards the other Jews, not to the Babylonians. Because if you're just you know Babylonian schmo, you, you've got no motivation to give an offering to the Jews to go home and rebuild their temple. So, so what's probably going on here is that Cyrus assumed that a lot of the Jews would not be able to return or not want to return. And yet here this, here's this pagan king urging the Jews, hey, if you can't go along, make sure that you, you generously support your, your brothers in going home to do this project. And again, it's just incredible. And it's a reminder to us that our God really is sovereign. Now, of course, for most of us in this room, well, of course, we know that. Duh, God is sovereign. But oftentimes, we struggle to believe it, right? When you look around at, at, at world governments, and, and they seem so powerful. You know, as do the evil philosophies that, that are transforming our, our, our country, our world. You know, it's so easy to look out at, at the powers of our world and to despair, thinking, man, we are losing. But we have to remember that our God is always sovereign. You know, we sang Behold Our God earlier, and that song reflects on Isaiah chapter 40. And, and in the midst of that chapter, it says this. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. And the same God who who turned the heart of Cyrus is still Lord of all. And he is sovereign over every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. He can save any soul. He can fix any problem. He will accomplish His plan. And so it's up to us to simply trust Him. And then a third characteristic of God we see in in these four verses is that God is worthy of praise. Now, again, I want to emphasize that that history tells us that that Cyrus uh, never converted to the exclusive worship of Yahweh. But it is incredible to, to read the confession of verses 2 through 4 and to think about a pagan king saying this. You know, it kind of makes you wonder if someone like Daniel helped him write this because it is incredibly theolo- it is theologically accurate and precise. This is quite the decree that, that he gives. But regardless of, of, of Cyrus' sincerity, I think it is significant to the author here that a pagan king put his royal seal on this statement. And so God here receives glory from the most powerful man on earth. Think about that. And and He demonstrates in the process that that He is worthy of honor and praise 
from every corner of His creation. And of course, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is just a foretaste of the universal worship that is coming someday. So God is worthy of praise. So in sum, these four verses are not just the decree of a human king. They are a testament to the faithfulness, sovereignty, and the glory of God. And, and, and like Israel, I mean, you think about those people when they hear all this stuff. We should stand amazed today at the glory of our God. We, we have to trust His Word. And we need to give Him the worship and the honor that He is rightly due. So, so that's the decree uh, that, that, that King Cyrus makes. And then verses 5-11 through 11 follow by describing the Jews' return. So uh, let's read on. Verse 5 says, Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go, and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuable, uh, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. And Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So, so we see here that God's not done. God moved in the people of Israel. Now, something that I think is important to appreciate at this point is that when, when Cyrus issued this decree, it was an exciting day for the Jews. But we have to remember that despite all the excitement about this opportunity, it was still a huge step of faith for, for these Jews to leave Babylon and, and for the most of them to travel back to a place that they had never seen before and, and, and to experience a, a lot of risk. And so, you know, for one, you can see on this map that they had a long ways to go. So, so they're over here in Babylon, and this red line uh, represents probably the path of the first return. And you can see up here the scale. So we're talking about hundreds of miles of journey. It probably, uh, scholars estimate it probably took them four months to make this journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's a long time. And, and it would be exhausting. So imagine you know, packing up your family, packing up all of your earthly belongings, and taking off on a four-month hike across the desert to go back to a place that you had never been before. And of course, we have to remember as well that they didn't have a police and security like we have today. And so um, thieves would oftentimes hide out along these uh, caravan routes and they would raid uh, these caravans and take their things. So it was not just long and exhausting, it was dangerous to make this trip. And of course, we, we mentioned last week as well 
that a lot of the Jews had significant jobs and, and very profitable businesses in Babylon before they went. So it'd be really hard. You know, if you're making good money, you're living in a nice home, you're secure, to just pack up your family and, and take off on this incredible journey. And you, you have no guarantee that you're going to have similar profits when you make it. You have no guarantee that you're going to be safe. You know, so really, for, for a lot of the people who returned to Judah, their life became harder, not easier. But, but despite all of that, what does verse 5 say? It says, the God, it says, God stirred many of the Jews. He says specifically, from Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, to go back home. Now, it is interesting here that he only mentions Judah and Benjamin. Because you remember that, that after Solomon's death, uh, Israel split into two nations. So, the ten northern tribes... Uh, made up the northern kingdom, and Judah and Benjamin made up the south. And, and it is sobering to consider the long-term consequences of that choice by the ten northern tribes to cut themselves off from the temple, which was down in Jerusalem, and to cut themselves off from the Davidic line of kings. That, that when they went into captivity under the Assyrians, many of the northern citizens completely lost their national identity. And they lost their religious identity. And, and so, it's sobering to consider what happened to them by, by making those choices. And, and yet we see here, not the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And God here moved them to take a tremendous step of faith and, and, and a great risk to restore their national identity and to restore their rightful way of worshiping God. And, and we ought to give thanks for these people. Because from a human perspective, the New Testament does not exist without these people from Judah and Benjamin and, and the priests and the Levites going back to Israel. Because there'd be no nation without these people making this incredible sacrifice to go and rebuild His people. And so God moved in His people. Of course, as well, verse 6 mentions that, that even among those who did not return, that God stirred them to generously support the endeavor. And so, and so it tells us there that they uh, gave generously, they gave livestock and supplies and money, which of course are really important if you're going to uh, launch into this massive project of rebuilding the temple. And, and I do just uh, want to emphasize here that, that both verses uh, 4 and 6 uh, mention that, that as the returnees are leaving Babylon to go back to Israel, that they are given generous gifts as they go. Does that remind you of anything previous in Israel's history? You know, that, that when they left Egypt, the Egyptians generously gave them uh, money and supplies as, as they were leaving Egypt to, to become a nation. And, and so the point here is, is to connect. I think the narrator here is very intentionally connecting that this, this group of people that left for Jerusalem with the Exodus generation and saying that Israel has not lost its identity. The same nation that God brought out of Egypt, out of captivity to His land, He is once again bringing out of captivity and bringing them back to their land. And just as God provided for them the first time they left captivity, 
God is providing for them again. So God never breaks a promise. He is always faithful to his people. And so you can imagine, all these people, they're getting ready to go back to Jerusalem and they're gathering up all these gifts. And the excitement was was surely palatable. God was at work among his people. But, But he wasn't just working among his people. Because we see in verses 7 through 11 that God was also working among the Persians. Now, now to back up here a moment, I mean, we need to remember that, that when Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple and took its sacred utensils back to, back to Babylon, that was a big deal. Yeah, because because the, 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 the items of the temple were, were considered holy to the Lord. They were sacred. But, but if you're a faithful Jew, it had to be devastating to see you know, these pagans gather it all up, put it in their bags, and carry it back to Babylon and stick all of it in their pagan temples as, as really trophies of, of how their gods were greater than the God of Israel. And of course, Daniel chapter 5 tells us the story that, that the night that Babylon was defeated, that, that Belshazzar pulled all this stuff out and he used it as to serve uh, his, his drunken uh, pagan party. And it's just a, a devastating moment. Uh, uh, if, you, if you love God and you care about His truth, uh, the Jews had to grieve at this sort of thing. But, but all that changes with Cyrus. Because Cyrus here, he goes into these temples in Babylon and he pulls out all these things that belong to the Jews and he returned them to them. So God is at work. Now, now I do need to mention here that, that the text says that he has specifically entrusted them to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And uh, because of where we're going with the rest of the series, uh, I want to mention that, that, that there's a lot of debate about who this guy Sheshbazar exactly is. So he's only mentioned four times uh, in the text of Ezra, twice here in chapter 1 and twice in chapter 5. And so the question is, is where does he go? And, um, and in particular, uh, most of the time, uh, a man named Zerubbabel is referenced as the governor of, of Jerusalem. So some people think that Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same guy, and that Sheshbazar is his Babylonian name, and Zerubbabel is his uh, Hebrew name. That's possible. Uh, another option is that they're two different guys, but Sheshbazar, for whatever reason, has more political clout. He's more trustworthy to the Babylonians, and so... And so Cyrus trusts him, but, but the people of, of Israel, they more trust Zerubbabel. And so they're kind of dual leaders. It's also possible that Sheshbazar dies pretty quickly on, and ultimately Zerubbabel is the one who leads the return. But, but we will see as we work our way through the book that Zerubbabel gets most of the tension. We, we don't know exactly what happens to this guy or who he is, but regardless, Cyrus returns many of these sacred items to him. And again, that is significant because it connects the first temple that Solomon built with the second temple that these returnees built. And and again, it's just incredible because when Nebuchadnezzar carried all these things away, you would have never thought as a Jew that all that stuff is going to come home. And yet here we are, just a couple generations later, and all of it is going back home. And it's a reminder to us, again, that that our God is sovereign. 
And he is not limited by human power. He is not intimidated by human forces. No, despite all human odds, here are all these temple objects going home to rebuild what had been destroyed. And then finally, the text tells us that God brought a remnant home. Now, now I'm sure that all of us would, would enjoy knowing a few more details about this four-month journey. Right? Because you know, Hollywood loves to make movies about stuff like this. You know, hard, difficult trips. And, uh, but God doesn't tell us much, does He? All it says at the end of verse 11 is that Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. You know, God's not really interested in, in telling us, you know, human interest stories or just giving us little fascinating details to, to satisfy our curiosity. He's more in, in, focused on making a theological point, which he wants to emphasize what God did, not what the people did. But regardless, I'm sure it was a grueling journey. But the Lord protected his people, and verse 11 closes out the chapter by just saying that they went up. And they made it from Babylon to Jerusalem. And then chapter 2 follows by telling us about the brave people who made this journey. Now, now this is a long chapter, right? 70 verses. And I'm not going to read the whole thing today. You know, in part because I don't want to pronounce all the names that come up in chapter 2. All right? And and I don't know that you want to listen to me. Maybe that would be fun. And and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. All right? So I'll just warn you, we're not going to go slowly through 70 verses. But, but this chapter is clearly very important to the purpose of the book. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. God never puts something in the Bible just for the fun of it or just to take up space. So, so I believe there are two primary points that God wants to make in this long list of all the people who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the first is, is that God preserved His people. You know, from a human perspective, the captivity should have wiped out any sense of Jewish identity. Because it did for lots of other people. You know, so even think to the time of Christ, just uh, 400 years or so later, or, or well, a little more than that, I guess. Um, you know, there's, there's no like Philistine identity or Edomite identity or Moabite identity at that point. And those peoples, be, because of the captivity, they, they lost that sense of identity, that that sense of, of, nat, of, of nation and status. But the two little tribes of Benjamin and Judah, they didn't just survive the captivity. If anything, what, what, what we see is, is that the captivity crystallized their identity as the people of God. So that the people that come back to Jerusalem are very different from the people that went into captivity. We read earlier, right, about, about how they worshipped all the, the false gods and, and, and defiled the temple of God. You don't see any of that after that captivity heading into the New Testament period. And God did a marvelous work among His people. And, and these lists here are, are given to us. We've got all these lists about where the people are from and who their dads are and so forth. It's all here as a testament to the fact that, that, that God protected His people. And that these people that went home, they're not just random people looking for a free place to, to, to settle. These are God's people who are going home. So, so the captivity did not destroy 
God's promises to Abraham and David. No, instead, they were a means of of bringing God's people together. God was faithful to keep His own. And then secondly, this chapter makes the point that God provided holy seed for a new nation. So, you know, just glancing through it, you can look at verses 1 through 60. And verses 1 through 60 just basically uh, all list all these names and and numbers of, of all the people that came home. And it makes verses 61 through 63 stand out. So I want to read these three verses. Verse 61 says, Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite. And he was called by their name. Right Now that's confusing. But then notice what he says. He says, These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and the Thummim. And so, these verses highlight the fact that, that, you know, this wasn't one of those, you know, beggars can't be choosers, so if you've got a pulse, we'll take you type of things. That they were careful. They wanted to know and, and, and be cautious about the fact that the only people that were serving as priests and, and claiming to, to have um, these legitimate lines, that it was proven as such. So you've got this whole family of people that can't prove their, their connection to, to Israel, and so they take a cautious approach. I mean, these people, they're committed to God. They're committed to holiness. And so verse 64 follows by saying that 42,360 people returned. Now, on the one hand, that's a pretty good crowd, right? But, but on the other hand, I mean, it is a fraction of the amount of people that left Egypt. Uh, during the first exodus. And think about the fact that 2 Samuel 24 tells us that at the height of David's power, he had 1.3 million fighting age men. In addition to women and children and those that were not able to fight. So so this is a small group of people in comparison to the nation as a whole. And, And I said last week that they're coming home to a territory that is about... 10% 10% of the size of the original, uh, 10% of the size of our county. So it is a small group of people going home to a small land. The odds still don't look very good for these people. And yet, from this tiny but holy seed, God rebuilt the nation of Israel. And he fulfilled his promise to send the Messiah into the world to be our perfect sacrifice. And someday, Jesus is going to come down, His feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and He will establish His throne in Jerusalem, and He will rule over the world over an everlasting kingdom. So folks, we do not live in a world that is governed by chance, or or by the law of averages. No, our sovereign and faithful God rules over everything. And, And so no matter how strong evil may seem to be out in the world or or inside your own heart. God is the ruler. He will preserve His people. He will build His church. He will glorify His children. He will take us to heaven. He is going to conquer all evil someday. 
And he's going to reconcile everything to himself. And so it's up to us to just trust the Lord that he will accomplish his purpose. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to serve such a trustworthy and powerful God. And God, we thank you that your purposes are always true. We thank you that you are always faithful. And so, Lord, I I pray for all of us in this room that, Lord, your Spirit would help us to have stronger and stronger faith all the time that you will do what you have said and you will be faithful. Lord, we believe and we pray that you'd help our unbelief. And Lord, I pray for any here today that need Jesus as Savior, that Lord, today they would bow the knee, they would put their faith in Christ and Christ alone, and that you would save them. And so Lord, give us strength even this week to serve you, to believe your promises, to walk with with a big view of a sovereign God, and, and may that shape every aspect of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.